Alright, here's 57 easy last minute Halloween costumes you can quickly DIY before your big party. Okay, what do we got? Smarty pants. Basically, you just wear your regular clothes and you attach a bunch of Smarties candies to uh, your pants. I see what they did there. Yeah. Uh, go as a Pantone color. Yeah. Oh yeah, ceiling fan, that's a classic. <laughs> a formal apology. <laughs> That's actually easy because all you have to do is dress in formal wear and then this sash says apology. <laughs> okay, that's... I could actually do that. That's actually great. I could put a suit on and do that. <laughs> <laughs> this is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio, this is Design Goggles. Coffee. It's as much a part of the identity of the city of Seattle as Puget Sound, Salmon, the Seahawks, or the Space Needle. The design of each coffee shop is a thoughtful process, and there is a lot of thought being put into the process by which that coffee gets here and into your cup as well. And even in the fair trade era, so to speak, that process might surprise you. Just as new technology is used every day to create coffee shops, technology is being used to track where the money goes when you buy that cup, and it goes places you might not expect. Increasingly, we are all concerned about equity and responsibility when we consume, and companies are rising to meet that challenge, designing how they produce. What does this mean for the small coffee shops of Seattle and beyond? To help us answer that question and more, we're joined today by Kayla Wolf, Director of Coffee at Onda Origins, a coffee roasting and sourcing company here in Seattle. Kayla, thank you for making time to sit and chat with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I am so excited just to sit and talk about coffee. Me too. For a while. That's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love coffee. Our coffee in the office is not great. And our boss does listen to this podcast, so I'm sure. He'll I can remedy like, that problem. Darn it. But <laughs> I, I have no problem with you coming and remedying that problem. Mm-hmm. Perfect. But that wasn't really why I brought you here. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> or was not it? The, not the for yeah. <laughs> well, I really was fascinated uh, to hear your story. Not only how you ended up in Seattle, but how you ended up at Onda Origins. Really fascinating. How long have you lived in Seattle so far? I've lived in Seattle for two years this past April. So actually coming up on three years in April. And where were you coming from before you moved here? I actually just moved back to the United States at that time. So I was living in El Salvador for about three years working in coffee there. I had my own coffee shop, but I started off there learning to roast and then moved into quality control. And that's a windy story that we can get into. But um, yeah, so I moved to El Salvador looking to get an education, one that I couldn't get realistically inside of a coffee shop in the United States. At least I didn't feel that I could. Hmm. And so I uprooted myself from North Carolina, moved there to work for a friend of a friend. I had been working in El Salvador since I was in grad school, off and on, and knew people there. And my background was in ecology. So that brought me to meeting coffee farmers who were involved in the studies that I was working with. So yeah, I ended up in El Salvador working for a really small farm doing roasting and even farm tours for that grower. So were you doing, your day-to-day was sourcing, roasting, and serving, and running a coffee shop? Well, it started off a little bit slower than that. So (laughs) when I moved there, my main focus was learning how to roast. I had no idea. So prior to that, I was working in a coffee shop in North Carolina called Coco Cinnamon. Actually, shout out to them. They are in residency at the Marzocco Cafe right now. Their roastery is called Little Waves. And so they taught me everything I know about being a barista. So I was working there, 
And I left that position to learn how to roast, basically, and then learn about not sourcing because I was going to live at source. So I wouldn't have to do much sourcing necessarily, but learning how to deal with green coffee. I'd never done that before. Mm -hmm. I was only brewing it for customers. Mm. Right. Is green coffee brought out to a marketplace somewhere? Do you have to go to the exact source that it's farmed? How Mm. does that work? That's an interesting question. So in my particular case, the micro roastery where I was working belonged to a particular farmer. So most of the coffee was his. Mm -hmm. His name is Cesar Margaña, and he had really high quality and still has really high quality, especially coffee that he's producing and selling to international markets, but was keeping some of it in country for his micro roastery to sell to restaurants in the area, which was a very new and special thing. At origin, most of the time, good coffee gets exported. Hmm. That is traditional. That's sort of a hangover from colonialism that's Mm -hmm. not gone. And so keeping good coffee in country for that country to consume itself is very, very new in the last five, six years, maybe a little longer, but as an actual real market, Hmm. it's fairly new. And so most of the coffee I was roasting was his, but he would also source from other farmers that he knew were doing equally special production and processing. So when you say the local market for local coffee is Mm -hmm. new, was it simply not available? Like, would they just be like pouring out folders for themselves while they're sending out? Worse. (laughs) Oh, no. Just like none. No coffee available? No, there's coffee. Nescafe. Oh, wow. Instantaneo. Little packets. Little packets of instant coffee. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's cheap. Right. But you would think without being handed to 12 people on the way somewhere else that it would be less expensive. Right. From our perspective, you would it's think. It's so processed, right? right? Yes. But um, Nestle, mm-hmm. just like they convinced mothers that formula was better than breast milk. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a very highly processed product and it's not, it was cheap. Right. And in the 50s, 60s, 70s, that was really highly marketed in those areas. Mm-hmm. And because all of the good coffee was being exported, it was much easier to open a little tiny packet of plastic mm-hmm. than to actually deal with beans of coffee. Mm-hmm. Because wow. there weren't roasteries right. either. Oh, interesting. And if they were, they were only roasting very, very poor quality coffee. Mm-hmm. And even then you had to then take the time to brew it. If you're out working really, really hard manual labor to survive, then you're going to pay 25 cents for a cup of coffee that you can pour into hot water mm-hmm. and not worry about getting Right. that actual Makes quality sense. product. Yep. What was your shop like that you worked in? So that came a few years later. I learned so much from learning to roast from my first employer there, Cesar. And there it was really very much an art. There wasn't computers navigating your roast curve for you that you could replicate. It was about sense of smell and sight and paying attention to the craft that you were doing. And so he taught me so much. And I worked for him for a few years. And then decided to stay because my intention was only to stay for six months. I decided to stay and make a life for myself there. And so I decided to rent a space and build out my own coffee shop. So I hired local builders and built out my own coffee shop. And at that time, I'd also recently gotten married. And so I had my own coffee shop. And even though I'd helped build out a coffee shop before that, it was very, very interesting to be an outsider presenting a fairly new product as far as especially coffee goes to the rural, somewhat local tourism-based market hmm. in El Salvador where I was living. Mm-hmm. I was living in Huayua, which is in the Apaneca Yamatepec mountain range there. And it's a very beautiful place that a lot of Salvadorans visit for getting to the mountains, getting hmm. to, you know, fresh, cooler air. Mm-hmm. And so most of my customers were actually those tourists, not tourists from outside the country, but tourists from within. Ah. We also, of course, had backpackers and surfers who were taking the weekend or week away from the coast and coming to that area. 
but it was a challenge because those cups of coffee were much more expensive than the instant coffee that people sure. relied on to right. get mm-hmm. themselves going in the morning, which is totally understandable. But we did fresh baked goods and uh, we had an espresso machine and did pour over coffees, trying to make something very unique. Mm-hmm. And it was very fun, but also very challenging. That's, that's amazing. Um, I, I can't imagine. That context in so many ways obviously seems so different than the context you're in now. You were in a place where coffee was sourced. It was everywhere, yet nearly unavailable to the same people who were growing it. And now you're in a city in the U.S. where coffee is consumed voraciously, Mm -hmm. where it isn't grown anywhere. No. That must come with a completely different set of challenges. Well, coffee as an industry is fairly loaded. It puts you in a weird situation no matter where you are. There's people with power and people without. And now as a green buyer in a consuming country which is where I ultimately wanted to be career-wise. Maybe not ultimately. I've got some ways to go, but um, hopefully. <laughs> You're like, I'm done now. I'm just done. Yeah. <laughs> I've made it. <laughs> Hair toss. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but I was hoping to be able to purchase coffee at really good prices from producers that I felt were putting so much effort into this product. But I wanted to be able to get people paid fairly and sustainably sustainably in a holistic sense. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I could make more of those decisions back in my own country where I was born, which is a consuming country, more so than I could being a quality control manager for a medium-sized farm in a producing country, which was my position other than owning my own shop in El Salvador when I left. So now one of my goals is to buy coffee from that producers that I was working with and got to know. But it's extremely loaded dynamic. There are people with a lot of negotiating power and people with very little. Mm-hmm. That and makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's disillusionment is real. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think your story is one that feels less disillusioning. Is that even a word? Uh, is It's hopeful, in my opinion, at least from our perspective. Uh, we talked a little bit in the intro about how, you know, consumers of late are much more concerned about what they consume in terms of how it got to them. Mm-hmm. And that is in everything, certainly in many different aspects of design, whether it's architecture or interiors or fashion or anything. And coffee is just huge, not just in Seattle, but everywhere in the country. And the consumer generations coming up are even more concerned about that path. Mm -hmm. It sounds like Onda Origins has an interesting perspective on how to create something that we take for granted, a cup of coffee, and make it something that's made responsibly, that we're responsibly consuming. But how exactly are you doing that? So I think that agricultural products in general are kind of a hard sell when it comes to inviting people to consume more conscientiously because they get used to a certain price point. Mm -hmm. This should be at this price for me because that's how it's always been. You know, people don't like when milk costs a lot more than it used to or or apple or any produce that you rely on. And people don't necessarily, especially in the United States, understand that coffee is an agricultural product. We see it as like something you get in a diner and you get free refills. I mean, that was the original Mm -hmm. culture around coffee in the United States prior to coffee shops, which, you know, thank you to Starbucks for introducing coffee shops. (laughs) Starbucks and Pete's. Thank you so much. But um, (laughs) Is that the last time we're going to thank Starbucks during this episode? Probably, yeah. (laughs) I was just curious. That's interesting. That took me from my surprise. Sorry about that. No, I mean, honestly, we owe that whole new culture to those companies. Um, So, but yes, I don't thank them for much. 
much of that in that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the market is saturated. So what we do at Onda to try to make the livelihoods of the people that we work with more sustainable in a holistic sense is we have a revenue share program. And so we hope that our consumers see that as a way to make an impact, that they can make an easy choice. You know, a lot of research shows that people will make that choice as long as it costs nearly the same as what they're used to. But I'm hoping that we're trending in a different direction than that. Mm -hmm. In fashion, mm -hmm. you know, food choices. Coffee's a little bit different because you can't have the local aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But you can think locally and act globally. Or mm -hmm. is it the other way around? I don't know the way tricky. to say it. Ooh, that is tricky. It's like a Mobius strip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> but, no, yeah. but, you, but you tapped into something there. It's that Seattleites in general, one of the first things I noticed when I moved here was people are much more concerned about buying local if they can, when they mm -hmm. can, because they see the real impact of keeping their dollars close to the maker of a thing, mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's Seattle or the Pacific Northwest region, or even if it's something that's American made. It's something that people take pride in here. Right. But everybody recognizes we are not a coffee producing region or country. And but I think they don't necessarily connect those dots. A, right. Right. But I think they're starting to. Right. Mm -hmm. And the fair trade buzz. era, yeah. buzz, the buzz surrounding fair trade is about that local kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. You're thinking globally because this is a global product. Right. right. But each consumer is making a choice locally. Are they going to go to the Starbucks or are they going to go across the street to the local coffee shop right. that is paying attention to these things? Right. Right. And technically the product is processed or manufactured, if you will, mm -hmm. locally. Right. So it's kind of funny. This is a sidebar, but coffee companies have trouble getting into farmer's markets. Markets. They have to be in the adjacent sort of food court area mm. because I've their agricultural yeah. product is huh. not local. Interesting. Even though it's not turned into anything consumable until it's until it is touched local. locally. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of a funny thing that it's still considered agricultural until it isn't right. and it's local until it isn't. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we turn the green coffee into something consumable here in South Seattle. So yeah. it's a local product. That we try to connect as much as possible mm -hmm. to the people who are responsible for well, and if you producing in the first place. Expand that to think of other, like if we step outside of agricultural, say, yeah, I don't know. I'm just fishing for a good metaphor here, and I might not land on it right away. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, say it's somebody that is making clothing mm -hmm. locally, even if they're making the fabric even weaving the fabric locally. Are they actually, maybe it's silk that came from a right. silk mm -hmm. farm somewhere on the other side of the world. Right. You know, so in, in that, we would still probably call a, would we call it a local product if they were weaving the fabric here and then taking that fabric and turning it into clothes? Probably. Even though this silk thread came from the other side of the globe? Probably. Uh, the maker, that maker, would probably be permitted to be involved uh -huh. in that market, let's say. And then say. so why not but coffee beans? the scrutiny beans? is somehow extreme <laughs> with coffee beans. <laughs> so interesting. Does coffee exist outside of the supply-demand curve on our end, on the consumer end? Is it a pure choice of brand or values? Because just as you were saying before, to put it in some context, mm -hmm. coffee used to be you, you go to a diner, you pay a quarter. It's, it's a little more than water. Right. But now you can still have that cheap coffee. Anybody can afford instant crystals. And you know it's something that's like less than a penny a cup if you really, really want it mm -hmm. to be. So everybody that's choosing to get coffee that's prepared for you, I'm positing maybe mm -hmm. that choice is not made on supply and demand. It's made on another level. 
Yeah, I would say that specialty coffee falls into somewhere in the realm of luxury or somewhere in the realm of enjoyment. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if you're making a choice based on your taste, whether it's fashion or design or going to a restaurant that's great, you could eat food. That isn't right. Right. You can you know you can eat food for nutrients. Mm -hmm. I'd say that specialty coffee is not about utilitarian consumption of caffeine. No, right. it's outside of that supply demand. The price put on the commodity of coffee, which specialty coffee is not traded on commodity prices, but the base price is still somewhat based on that commodity price. That C market price which is the commodity price, mm -hmm. is based on supply and demand that is on the trade market. Yeah, I kind of almost want to ask a really boring, nerdy, wonky question, which is, is the commodity of coffee at all regulated by government? Each producing country has their own regulations about how coffee is grown, mm -hmm. how it's processed, and how it's sold. So some countries can only sell on a public auction. Some can sell directly to buyers. Mm -hmm. Some countries are not, the growers are not permitted to process their coffees in certain ways. So there is agricultural governmental departments who do maintain some control over coffee. And they do have sometimes ceiling prices. But the general commodity price of coffee is based off of predictions, which are based off of weather patterns and other things happening, hmm. mostly in Brazil. Because okay, that's where interesting. Yeah. the bulk of the coffee is coming from. And so that's where most of the predictions are made by traders and brokers, which I don't understand right. how that works. Totally cool. So my next question needs a little prompting. We did an episode a couple months ago about greenwashing, mm -hmm. which is this concept where, you know, somebody, for instance, slaps on a plastic bottle, new green bottle, and all they really did was make a smaller cap. And it's obviously not greener. It's just they save money by using less material and has nothing to do with being good for the environment at all. And it's totally a dishonest marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. The term fair trade is thrown around a lot. People automatically think that if they're buying something that has fair trade stamped on it, they are sending their money to the people who are making a thing. Is that still true? Was it ever true? It wasn't not true. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very rigorous certification process, just like certified organic is, just like bird-friendly coffee was, the Smithsonian certification that was around in, I don't know if it still exists, honestly, but it was very buzzy, I think around 2006, 7, 8, 9. They were very rigorous certification processes, fair trade being one that was meant to trickle down more money mm -hmm. per pound of coffee to the growers and hopefully to the people who were working the farms. Maybe not the landowners themselves, but the people who were actually working. I would say that most small independent coffee roasters who are carefully sourcing and paying specialty prices per pound of green coffee are actually paying a lot more than fair trade mm -hmm. actually got back to growers. If there was low quality coffee that had the fair trade certification on it, that would probably be a good way to get more cents on the dollar hmm. to growers. But in some cases, it was, you know, cents on the dollar, not mm -hmm. dollars more. Right. And so if you look at a quality differential for specialty coffee, and then in, not to toot our own horn or in, in any way, because I don't necessarily think that we're going to stick with the model that we have now. We, maybe we'll have a more dynamic one in the future. But mm -hmm. our revenue share program right now gets a dollar per pound of green coffee back to the growers, which is, I think, 12 times more than fair wow. trade. I, wow. I'm not the person who, who does the cogs and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. My colleague Shannon does. So she could give the exact mm -hmm. multiplier. 
that we are above fair trade. And of course, I think that changes, but it's cents on the dollar per pound. And we give a dollar per pound Mm -hmm. as a second payment, not as a donation or anything, just a second payment. It's not in kind. It's just money. The growers can do what they will with it. You know, if it's buy a new car, or they can't buy a new car with that much money. We don't buy that much coffee. <laughs> We're very small. But, you know, if it's buy some sunglasses, it's whatever. But it's giving, it, they have the autonomy to do what they will with it. With every cup of coffee, you just get a picture of the roaster with a new car. Yeah. It's like, and look. the new coach sunglasses. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, we are so small. We're, we're growing. We're mm-hmm. definitely growing. But our contribution is small because we would love to buy more coffee. And the more coffee we buy and the more coffee we sell, the more we give in that second payment to the growers. Yeah, fair trade is not greenwashing, I wouldn't say, because it was extremely well thought out and extremely mm-hmm. well-intentioned. Mm-hmm. And it just ended up falling short. Hmm. And I don't think it's a bad certification. I think it's helpful. And I think I'm looking at a coffee right now to buy that is fair trade certified, but it's not going to change the way we pay the growers, which will still involve the revenue share to go above and beyond that because the cost of production the cogs for, for the uh, coffee growers are only increasing. Mm. And the base level pricing, the CE market pricing, is fluctuating wildly and is well below cost of production most of the time. So if a grower can't break out to the specialty market, fair trade is a great thing. Do I think it's enough most of the time? Probably not mm. to get them above cost of production. That's speculation on my part, but I've seen it firsthand. And, and I think that it's well-intentioned. I wouldn't say it's greenwashing for marketing purposes. Do I think it's been used for marketing purposes since then? Probably by roasters and coffee shops. Mm -hmm. So what you guys do is a little different. And Mm -hmm. this is going to likely take an explaining on your part. Mm -hmm. How your bosses are in the tech world, not in the coffee world. You're the beating heart of the coffee side, as I understand it. Right. And they use, and this is completely over my head, so I'm just going to hand this over to you. They use blockchain to ensure that you are outperforming fair trade practices. How exactly does that work as far as you understand? Exactly. (laughs) I would say that we use blockchain to exhibit radical transparency. If we're showing that we're doing well by our growers, Mm -hmm. great. But it's more to disrupt the status quo. Yes, we use the word disrupt. I feel like we should get like something in the mail every time. Congratulations, you used the word disrupt. That's right. Yeah, it's cheesy. Uber just gave you a dollar off your next ride. It's so cheesy. I know. No, I know. No, it's okay. So blockchain's buzzy. And I am not a tech person whatsoever. Not at all. And the way that I see our use of blockchain is as a tool. We didn't decide to use blockchain. That wasn't like a biz dev choice or a marketing choice. It was we had this idea about having a revenue share model. That meant getting money back to people all over the world. And the way the supply chain works is oftentimes very complex. The growers who grow your coffee in a country like Burundi, for example, they don't own expansive coffee farms. They have a few plants on their land. They bring the harvest from those plants to a washing station. And based on quality and location, those coffees get blended together. Mm. And so as much as possible, we wanted to be able to trace back who grew the individual parts of these lots of coffee. In some cases, it's very easy. In Central America, most of our coffees come from one grower and even in South America. But in Laos, it's the same thing. It's multiple growers from a family coming together and putting their coffee together. 
So remitting that second payment, that revenue share, is very difficult and complex. And we haven't actually really figured it out, but mm -hmm. blockchain was seen as a tool for us mm -hmm. to help mark this coffee at every step of the mm -hmm. supply chain in a way that is immutable. Now, could someone fib along the way? Yes. But you have every actor that is involved in putting that data in order for it to go from one hand to the next. Everyone before and everyone after has to agree that, yes, this is what I've been told and this is what I'm going to receive. And coffee gets bought and sold quite a bit before it goes from producer to roaster. Mm -hmm. And it depends on relationships. And they're all very tight knit and sometimes gray. But producers sometimes lose control of their coffee very early on in the supply chain. And so we just wanted to find a tool to help us to remit payment back to the correct people. So I think we're still on a path to using that platform, that software platform, which we build a user interface. We're very close to being able to release that to our consumers. But that's only half the story. We also want this interface to be very accessible to our growers. So they can see the prices that are being paid by the end consumer. Mm -hmm. And let's say they lost ownership of their coffee very early on. They can see where the money was exchanged along the way and where the prices changed. So how much each step in the supply chain, which is a service and should make its own margin because each step along the supply chain is its own business mm -hmm. that puts in its own value. But they can see where the value add is increasing the price of coffee and how it was sold along the way. Some producers are very aware of this already, and some are not. So we just want to make a very transparent loop of connecting the information from beginning to end and then back again, where everyone could see what's happening to that coffee and, and the prices that are being exchanged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fascinating. Yeah. And really, everyone is eking out a very small margin along the supply chain. Mm. People often say, you know, you pay $4 for a cup of coffee in a coffee shop, and that's only, you know, you can get 15 or 17 of those cups of coffee out of a pound. So that's insane because if you multiply that by 17, then, you know, mm -hmm. the roast, the coffee shop is making so much money on that pound of coffee. That is only considering the cost of the coffee, mm -hmm. not the cost of the labor or the cost mm -hmm. of running space and, you know, all of the intrinsic costs of running a business here in the United States. Mm -hmm. So while it does seem very inequitable. And often it still is compared to the lack of sustainability for the financial situation of the grower. They're not making money hand over fist either. But mm -hmm. we need to ensure that. And so we use blockchain as a tool of just blowing up the information for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. And then we can all check ourselves, basically. Mm -hmm. I think that's borderline brilliant because especially the newest generation of consumers are skeptical. They're less skeptical of a company like Starbucks. They're just like, we know what you're all about. Like, you're not trying to be anything you're not. But they are more skeptical of anyone promising that, no, 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 we're actually doing it right. And mm -hmm. they want to see that. I think that's really interesting. I think skepticism is great. Mm -hmm. Coffee and the marketing around it gets very much romanticized. <laughs> and nothing upsets me more than like a photo of some like dirty hands holding ripe coffee cherries. <laughs> <laughs> that's not romantic. <laughs> that's someone breaking their back yeah. harvesting coffee cherries. And as far as going back to the greenwashing, I don't know what kind of washing that is, but it's, <laughs> it's not cool. That's fair. That is really fair. And, you know, I, I'm sure we've been guilty of it sometimes. My founders, we visit the coffee growers that we work with and, you know, of course, we take photos with them. And, but we try to have as much of a real relationship with them and ask them what they need. And hopefully we can buy enough coffee very soon to make a huge difference in their bottom line because that's what we're concerned about. 
That's what I'm concerned about. Speaking of which, you are opening a shop. Yeah. Or kind of half half opened a shop already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got a tiny pop-up out of a really scrappy garage space right now. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the shop. What's it like to put together your first shop here in the States? How far mm-hmm. along are you? What do you envision the space being like? How are you going to tell your story? Yeah, so we were actually planning on building out a mobile unit and... We like mobilized some funding for that and we were planning and designing. And my two founders are Scott Tupper and Paul Tupper brothers. And Scott is wily, let's say. He's the... <laughs> let's say. He's, <laughs> he's always moving and shaking and looking for something to push us in different directions. And we were thinking of looking into retail space for our very first time as a company, I think this year in the new year but he found this space for sale that was our that was previously a coffee shop in Hillman City and we spun that all around and bought this coffee shop and so we decided to renovate to bring light to our brand as it had been you know neighborhood staple that was a beautiful coffee shop and people loved it but we wanted to put our spin on it and represent our brand showcase the growers showcase everything that we're about in a different way So we decided to renovate it, and we've been doing that for longer than expected. But we are making huge moves right now. TMI, but the bathroom's almost finished. (laughs) That's not TMI. That's huge. (laughs) And the bar framing is almost finished yesterday. And, you know, I'm looking into custom ceramics right now, getting those designed with our brand designer. And so it's very exciting and very stressful and a lot of work. But we're super excited because we've never had a customer-facing space we haven't had our own space. We've been only wholesale up until this time. So that gives us a whole new way to tell our story, which is pretty cool because that's like, that's our whole thing yeah. is getting to yeah, tell yeah. our stories and the story of why we exist and why we work with who we work with. So I'm trying to right now to hire a really intensely dedicated team. And I've got a really fantastic cafe manager and we're really just busting through. I don't know. I'm going to, I'm probably having a hard time not swearing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want, you can just swear up a street. Let's take it out. No, no, no. That's awesome. We're getting close to being out of time, but what's the dream? What's the pinnacle of where you guys want to get onto origins? Mm. What is onto origins? Just making it. What does that look like? Do you just like the Starbucks flag comes down off their building no. and yours goes up? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I have a hard time speaking for the whole team on this, but I think the dream is to help other coffee professionals to like uplift the industry, to kind of break through that mentality of coffee is a commodity or coffee has a price ceiling. Coffee is not as special as something as wine. I think comparing it to wine is problematic in certain ways, but I think as far as the consumers realizing that there's more to be experienced in coffee and that's why certain coffees are special and cost more and providing that cost back down to the growers so they can live sustainably because that's what we all deserve. That's our dream. So I think we would love to expand retail locations eventually, even outside of Washington. Making it, I don't know. But I think if we were buying... From a green buyer perspective, 60 to 70 bags per grower that we were working with, we'd be like halfway to making it. <laughs> sounds <crazy. laughs> That sounds so we like a really lot, make a difference. so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> we could really make a difference that way. Yeah. Thank you very much for sitting with us and chatting about this. Oh my gosh, uh, no, thank you. I think I blathered on because I could talk about this Definitely not. No, I've been fascinated. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. 
Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also, check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks. <laughs>